0: a big thing I used to see when I first started working in cycling, people would be taking caffeine like in the last 20 minutes or 15 minutes. And that caffeine's not going to be in the blood until really? they're on the bus. And mm. it's going to compromise sleep <laughs> and recovery. So it's better yeah, to it take is. it early because caffeine starts working after about 15 minutes, reaches its peak around 45, 50 minutes. And then five hours later, then it's at half concentration. So it's got a real long ergogenic window and then it's only 10-12 hours when it's actually left the body people think they take caffeine they get an instant boost and it's gone straight away but it's quite a long sustained sustained peak that, that caffeine has G'day legends and welcome back to the Press Room
1: Podcast presented by Swift. Episode eighty, guys. We are back. We are back after a little couple of weeks off, and uh, you know, I was on the east coast of Australia. I was doing some commentating, which is what I do outside of the podcast. I had the cyclocross nationals in Australia, uh, in Ballarat, which was freezing, uh, and then Tour of Gippsland for the NRS on the other side of Melbourne. So, um yeah, it was a pretty cool two weeks, and it was really cool to see. Um, or the uh, listeners of the pod on the East Coast who are racing those events or uh, spectating as well. But um, you have to say it's a bit cold on the East Coast. As much as I love it, it's not quite the 29 degrees I had when I returned to the great state of WA um, early September. But nevertheless, it was a really cool two weeks and now we're back. I've been working hard at getting the final seven, eight, nine episodes for the remainder of this year ready for you guys. And we have some epic guests coming up, okay? And I'll, you know, I'll sprinkle them along as we go through to December. But, legends, today's guest, well, we're talking all about food, actually, more about nutrition. And we have James Moran from Unomex Pro Cycling on the podcast today. Now guys James, he is the head of nutrition at Uno X. And seriously, this is a detailed role. This man needs more staff at UnoX. So Jens, if you're listening, he needs a few people underneath him because what he does and his role and, and all of it that involves throughout a grand tour, a stage race, um, a one-day race, a preseason, there is so much that goes into it and you're going to hear all about it. Now, specifically with regards to cycling nutrition and at the World Tour level, we chat about the demands of a Grand Tour, okay? What the riders are eating at different periods of a Grand Tour, you know, uh, on rest days, hard stages, altitude stages, transition stages, etc. It's really different. What are they consuming before the stage and what are they consuming afterwards? What are they avoiding? And then what about leading into a Grand Tour, like two or three weeks out? What do they have to consider about then? We also discuss the challenges and the changes um, with regards to cycling nutrition over the past 20 years as well. There's been huge advancements. And uh, James is a real expert in this area. Um, He previously worked for Science and Sport and INEOS Grenadiers, um, also worked in a clinical setting um, in hospitals and worked with Olympic athletes in the Great Britain setup as well. So the man is an expert, and uh, we know that Uno X and Jens Hogeland, the general manager, are very forward-thinking. So I wasn't surprised to hear uh, that James had landed on their setup. So guys, I really hope you enjoy this episode and come out of it with a greater understanding and also appreciation for just how much food and calories these riders have to eat to uh, perform at the highest level. Uh, It's just absolutely bonkers. But guys, before we get stuck in this episode, we know, okay, we know the energy. Can you feel it through the microphone? Well, I can. It's because I'm holding one of the bottles, the TPR bottles. If you're listening right now, you hear that? Amazing, that is the bottles, okay? They are online, so tprcyclingnews.com. You can go and buy your bottles Limited, there's a limited number because you know there's order quantities, right? I couldn't get a million of them, but they're on the website now, so they are live. Go to tprcyclingnews.com, buy some bottles, support the podcast. It really does support the pod if you get some of these. Now, I use the specialized purist bottles, okay? Forked out the big bucks to get the good stuff, right? So, um, specialized purist bottles, and I got the good lid as well, got the good lid. And um, I know you guys are gonna love them. So if you buy two, right, whoever buys two uh, bottles goes into the draw to win a full attacker kit, so bibs and jersey, and I've got two to give away, okay? So I'll randomly select um, the people, it'll be one guy, one girl, so male, female kit. Gonna be elite, head to the bottles, put them out of stock, and uh, we'll see what happens in the next year. But guys, it's time to get stuck to this episode, Big thanks to Attacker, Zwift, Smith Optics and new sponsors coming on board soon. i will share that next week and uh, well, enjoy
0: the episode. Currently based uh, in Manchester, where I'm, where I'm from originally. Um, and yeah, my current role is head of nutrition with the UNOX Pro Cycling team. So in my, in my current day-to-day work, I'm responsible for all of the kind of nutrition and hydration and supplements um, everything that the riders kind of eat and drink when they're on race um, coordinating logistics to make sure that we have the right nutrition products and the right strategies at different races um, working with our team chefs to make sure they're delivering the right food at the right times and, and those things and then with our development team we do mostly kind of education with those young guys and then with our women's team, we have a nutritionist, Hannah Mayo, who I um kind of supervise and help out in the background. And she she delivers the nutrition to those guys. So that's kind of how how we look at the moment in Uno X. Hopefully we can expand the nutrition service we have and bring in some more people because it's has a big impact on the on the riders and something that our team management back back me in is the uh, nutrition setup, So hopefully we can keep building on that and, and grow a little nutrition empire. Uh, not quite Yumbo Visma, but um, hopefully we can get towards that level in the next few years. Yeah. It's... And then before, before coming. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sorry. You go. Uh, before coming to Nox full time, I was working with Ineos Grenadiers as a nutritionist for a couple of seasons alongside some work with science in sport. Um, and that, that was cool to, to work in that system for a few years. Before that, I worked in British Cycling and the English Institute of Sport and the British Olympic system in different sports, uh, but did a stint with the most of the track and the mountain bike program at, at British Cycling. Um, worked in other sports like swimming, triathlon, bits and pieces with with random athletes here and there. And then for a long time, I, I worked as a, a clinical dietitian in the health service. So I worked in the hospitals and clinic settings for, for 10 years in the UK. And before all that, I, I did a degree in sport and exercise science. So it's been a long kind of journey and transition to get to to where I'm now working in professional road cycling. Um, starting out in the early two thousands, uh, studying sports science, working in the hospitals, and then gradually building up enough work in sport to um, take on the roles that I'm doing now. Yeah, that's
1: a that sounds like a really well rounded um, skill set and experience sort of lineup particularly to go into, you know, professional endurance sport, you know, having that, that long background in hospital setting um, and then, of course, your background with sports exercise science um, and then working with other endurance sports as well. You can kind of see how you've landed where you are. That's really, um, yeah, that's quite a nice package um, of experience. Um, For nutrition and, and nutrition and cycling and pretty much all endurance sports, it's changed and develop so much like you know you only have to speak to someone who was in the sport 30 40 years ago or not even 20 to 30 years ago and the things they would tell you with regards to um, cycling nutrition what the riders were eating and consuming before and after everything's
0: changed hasn't it Um, in in the sport these days James yeah definitely I don't even think you have to go that long back I mean some of our direct to sportifs who were, you know, racing not that long ago. Things things have changed in the last five, five to ten years. Like anything, we 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 learn more, we understand more, you know, new things come out, the discipline evolves, more people are working in the field, more research being done. So mm-hmm. it's a natural progression, but as well the sport has changed in the past past five to ten years. You see the types of riders now who can be competitive across a range of terrains, you know you're more explosive, powerful riders, and the the sport has definitely changed. and nutrition has had to change to to um to suit that. Um, it's a lot more diverse and competitive uh, peloton now than maybe five five to ten years ago. I would say, mm, no doubt about that. Um, absolutely, no doubt about that. There's so many factors
1: that go into that. And you mentioned um with regards to your role at UNX, the head of nutrition, um. You know that entails so much. Of course, there seems like there would be a lot of planning at the start of the year. I imagine, or maybe at the end of this year and into the start of next year, with um maybe like your strategies for how you'd be feeling throughout the year. Like, is do you have to kind of set up a skeleton of of your general principles and practices for the year? Is that how it would work?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we we have a skeleton of then protocols because. In cycling, you might have three races going on in three different countries at the same time. Now there's only one one of me, so I need to have things in place that will run if I'm there or if I'm not, so that the the carers on the ground, the chefs on the ground, uh, the director sportifs, the riders have enough autonomy with me in the background to be able to execute nutrition in in these different races because. I physically can't be on every single race to, yeah. to control that. And my role is yeah working with those guys on the ground. And then I attend the races where it probably adds value me being there. So the real challenging stage races, um, the classics, the races that have altitude and other, other stresses that where it might need a bit more refining of, of me being there on the ground, as well as then attending camps as well and altitude camps to support the guys that are working on things there. So it's a kind of two strands. It's the kind of strategic planning, but also the individual one-to-one work as well and making sure I've, I've got good buy-in from the, from the staff and the riders that, that I'm working with because some riders I might not actually see in person from January camp to December camp. I'll be in contact with them over WhatsApp and phone, but I might not actually be on a race or camp with them. So it's a lot of setting systems up so we can collect data and have conversations and they can make decisions without me always needing to be at the table with them.
1: <laughs> hmm. That's interesting you say there's a few races that you obviously you need to be there on the ground because maybe they're different demands. Um, say so for example, you mentioned altitude, like a race or a training at altitude. Um, what makes it easier for you to be there? Like, Why is it important for you to be there, for example?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, usually the races with high altitude are the the high profile races. So the mm-hmm. Dauphiné, the Tour de France, you know, the Grand Tours. So obviously from a the stakes are higher, you know, the the field is is more competitive. It's a it's a harder race. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's where nutrition really needs to be completely dialed. Whereas if you look at a race like the Tour of Britain this week, like we were just talking about, although it's my home race and I visited a few stages, every day's a a uh, sprint stage it's kind of copy and paste day in day out so the riders know what they need to do each day with that whereas in a grand tour where you might have a flat sprint stage one day a rest day the next then a you know 4500 mountain day they have very different nutritional demands and sometimes being there in person can identify any problems with appetite making sure the rider's weight is where it needs to be making sure that the hydration is where it needs to be so Having that extra checkpoint is where I would position myself on those kind of races. Um, in some of the longer stage races, we often see riders' appetite starts to tail off and they they can get kind of bored with with food. So sometimes me being there can just make sure that they're actually still hitting the targets and we can use different combinations of food to make sure they're getting in what they need to do. Sometimes if there's not a nutritionist there, they might the big danger is that they just won't eat enough under those. Conditions of fatigue and stress Um, and as well in the Grand Tours when all of the stress around a race is quite high, people can make strange decisions because they're in a very high pressure environment. They might suddenly decide to do something stupid or, you know, not do what they've done in all all of the other situations. So then it's my role to make sure we're, we're keeping them where they need to be. Because it's their job to to race and ride the bike fast. It's my job to make sure that they've got everything in place to fuel mm. and recover from from those mm. side of things.
1: Yeah, I've heard lots of stories and I've talked to a few riders where they have mentioned the um, yeah you know, that fatigue of eating, you know, palate fatigue. They get sick of having you know the same stuff all the time. And you know, to be honest, I've seen lots of uh, really cool. Um, behind the scenes um, footage with other teams now, and you can and the the, the team chefs and, and other nutritionists they're always making a point of trying to make different meals, you know, so that they reduce that that palate fatigue. But you you mentioned you touched on, we'll go more into this a little bit later in the pod. But the um, high altitude stage in the Grand Tour versus a flat sprint stage, different demands. One's you know, obviously a, a, a lot more demanding on the body than uh, another. But how much of a difference in sort of calorie or food intake would there be between, you know, a big, you know, five mountain pass stage versus just a flat sprint with two breakaway guys off the front? Like, is it is it a small difference or is it quite a large difference?
0: No, it's, it's a big difference. I mean, I haven't got the, the data in front of me, but um, I think in the big queen stage in the tour, I think our highest – calorie expenditure is like 7,000 calories on the bike. You compare that with a sprint stage, which might be like 4,000. So, you know, it's a a big difference. And if you're over three weeks, if you're always on the plus side or always on the negative side in that last week, it it can be make or break. If you've always been on the negative side, your weight will have probably come down, but then there's probably going to be compromised muscle mass and immune function if you've always been on the plus side then you could maybe be two three kilos heavier when you hit that last mountain stage so we're constantly looking each day what are the demands of that day we would do like an energy prediction for each each stage in advance in terms of calories and then i would formulate a nutrition plan based on that but then after each stage we, we review and if someone's been in the breakaway or it's been a lot harder or the weather's been way hotter then we would have to adjust that so that they're kind of in balance for the next day. So it's mm-hmm. I describe it as like a 21 day puzzle where each day is a kind of different challenges and different kind of um components that we have to get right. So it starts off as as a kind of numbers based exercise on a on a spreadsheet with our directors' sportifs. But then it's my job to really make that into into food and fueling solutions because the riders don't think in kilojoules or grams per kilogram they just need to know how much food they should eat in these set windows we have and how much fuel they need to get in per hour in these in these situations it's my job to to do all of the thought process behind it it's their job to to kind of yeah follow the plans and adjust it if they think it needs adjusting
1: Mm, wow i guess that would change as well or well, it would be different for all the riders you would have in a team because, you know, they all weigh different amounts and they might be performing different roles, one sitting in the bunch using less energy and others on the front using a lot of energy. So it's not a set plan for the team. It would be individual
0: plans, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's eight, eight individual plans. And I think with, with Uno No X this year, it's the, the team's first Tour de France. Um, so you've got that as well. You know, there's out of the eight riders, there's only Christophe, Alexander Christophe, who's done the Tour de France before. So mm. you've got that to take into account as well. Um, we have quite a diverse range of of uh, weights. Like in our whole squad, I think the lower end would be like 59, 60 kilo mm. climber. The top end might be 89, 91 kilo time trialist sprinter. So mm. it's a 30 kilogram difference just in, in mass. Um and the bigger guys still have to get over the mountain passes and make the time cut, so there's still an energy cost to those big mountain days, even if they're not fighting for the, the stage placings. On the flip side, even in those easier sprint stages, the climbers might be sat more in the bunch, but they've still got to be thinking about the next day where they where they need to perform. So it's a, it's a kind of tightrope where we're making sure the riders are getting enough, they're recovering well, we're minimizing any stomach issues or, you know, any any health issues and keeping them nice and stable, but preparing for each day in in different, different contexts. I think how the sport's changed the past few years is there's not really the easy transition stages anymore. Mm. Every every stage in the Tour de France is a is a fight. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even what might look easy on paper when you look at the altitude meters and distance. The riders will come back and they say, "Well, that was that was a hard, stressful day." And you know, in those hard, stressful days, it can be easy to miss fueling because you, you you're just kind of concentrating all the time, and the bunch is really stressful. It can be really easy to miss miscalculate your, your fueling needs. So, yeah, it's constantly reviewing and checking in with the riders. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely no easy days. It actually, reminds
1: me of a story, James and I. On another podcast I heard, and, and Matt White uh, was telling the story from uh, the, the Jayco DS, and he said when he was riding for whatever team he was on with um, Cipollini, Cipollini was a, a standard sprint stage. It was a rest day you know, for the peloton. And Cipollini said, Whitey, he was the new kid on the block, he said, Whitey, go get some ice creams. We want some ice creams. It's stinging hot today. So Whitey had to go on the break in the day, and he actually stopped while he was in the break, you know, got 10 minutes. He stopped and he had to go into a store and he got some ice creams <laughs> from the store <laughs> and then <laughs> dropped himself back to the Peloton and he was handing out ice cream stores deep. So That's funny. It's a little bit different now, but um,
0: it's... Yeah. yeah, I mean, to be fair, we do use not ice creams, but we use like ice pops, like um, in, in the feed, in the feed bags on the hot days. So the concept's still there, but yeah, <laughs> sometimes the, the race is going so full tilt. They don't, they don't manage to uh, take the music so if it's in the wrong place.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I saw just on uh, the other day, I was watching Remco's um, latest YouTube video. You know, he started doing these YouTube um, vids now and they're really something kind of shows his personality off a bit more, but His team uh where he was at the training camp before the Vuelta would just his Swanier, it was just the two of them. And um the Swanier said that they started doing the ice slushies because they noticed other teams were doing them and they were kind of practicing at this altitude camp, getting them right, you know, so he's not getting handed a frozen block, but he's getting handed a bottle that's kind of in the middle. And um, that's also another thing, eh? Like the slushies seem to come into it on the hot, hot, hot days.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah. The- Theoretically, there's there's some good evidence for the slushies, but in practical terms, I still have reservations whether it's whether it's worth the the effort and the the stress mm-hmm. to try and get them for the right um, texture. I think if you sat before a time trial and you can eat it from a bowl, mm-hmm. then the, or you're mm-hmm. doing a track race, there might be some. But I think in a bike race, the amount of slushy that you would need to ingest to get the central cooling effect. I don't know if that if that actually happens um, mm. or not. You know, I think my experience from speaking with other teams, it can just they just get in the kind of really cold liquid mm. while the thing's still frozen in the bottle in the race. Yeah, so yeah, we 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 use kind of ice pops where they'll get a sensation of feeling cold. They might ingest a little bit of of the ice, but it's probably not going to be enough to have an effect on on core temperature. But it's like anything in cycling. Or if other teams are doing it, then it must be it must be great. Um, mm. Whereas, yeah, so sometimes sometimes <laughs> the practical application of things, it, it, yeah, you're much better just focusing on having enough hydration and and ice and making sure the drinks are cold enough and and all those side of things. I think sometimes if you focus too much on those new innovations, then you can actually miss some of the other things. And I heard about one of the, a big world tour team on one of the really hot stages didn't have any cold drinks no. um in in one of the in the in the cars or in the feed zone because of a mix-up and i think that's oh. the danger you you can get away because you oh everyone starts focusing on we need to get the slushies right and then before you know it, you've you've dropped the ball on something that's actually mm. really important so mm. i'm quite pragmatic and try and be as streamlined and and simple as possible when 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 doing these things in the field mm. okay
1: um We were chatting before, uh, just, you know, we mentioned how much the nutrition side of cycling has changed. When you uh, maybe first started entering into the cycling world, you know, what were the general sort of principles with fueling, like in terms of how many grams per hour riders were aiming to eat? Like how has that um, changed to now, like say 10 years ago to now? Like what are those sort of differences that you've noticed?
0: Yeah, it's it's changed quite a lot. Like the on bike fueling, especially um, with the you know innovations and new research we have in in sports nutrition. You know, it, there always used to be this this theoretical ceiling that riders could only ingest like sixty grams of of carbohydrate per hour, and above that, the carbohydrate wouldn't be absorbed and oxidized. And that was when we were using single source products like glucose and maltodextrin because we found that those Research for showing that those transporters get kind of saturated at 60 grams per hour and the body's not able to absorb any more. So, if riders were trying to push more in those days, they would have just got bad cuts because it was almost like a, a traffic jam on the motorway. The carbohydrate had, had nowhere to go and then it would all, all pass through. And yeah, some riders would have a disaster. But then, research moved on to adding in fructose yeah <laughs> adding in fructose which is another type of sugar and that uses a slightly different doorway into into the gut so then it was found that oh riders are now able to absorb 90 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour and the muscles were able to oxidize that and then products were then starting to play with the ratio of, of glucose to fructose and now you'll see some teams you know using 120 grams of carbohydrate per hour some riders boast about uh, 140 150 grams of carbohydrate per hour like it's a it's a badge of honor um but again context it has got to be everything with with sports nutrition so just because a rider's able to eat and drink that much and they're not having bad guts that doesn't actually mean that much is going to be fully absorbed or used by the muscle so it's it's always yeah one of those things and you know sometimes if we put in that much carbohydrate in is that going to start then inhibiting fat oxidation is it going to start down regulating those side of things so it's it's like anything in cycling you know if this amount is good then this amount must be really good whereas usually the truth somewhere in the middle um mm-hmm. but yeah you, you, we, we're seeing much more carbohydrate now being used on the bike and i just think as well better better quality products as well mm. there's products now there's just more quality in terms of bars drinks gels whereas you know 5 10 years ago there wasn't the same same quality control mm. well, what year were you at Ineos credit ears james were you working there um i was there just before covid so the start of 2020 um up until the end of 21 so two two seasons there um, okay. And we we joined the team kind of after James Morton, who was there for kind of the the glory days when they were, you know, when they won a lot of grand tours. We kind of came in after that. Um and it was a, a bit of a transition period, the the two seasons that I was there for mm-hmm. for the team um with, with the riders and through. And mm-hmm. it was kind of at the tail end of that that regime.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and then what about uh, when you were working at Science and Sport? What
0: year was that? So that was the same same period. So we, oh, no, we were okay. actually, yeah, that the role was kind of a combined role with, with SIS and INEOS. And we, we helped develop the, the beta fuel range in line with this because if you go back to 2018 when Froome won, won the famous stage in, in the Giro d'Italia, the only dual source product they had at that time was a, as a drink called Beta Fuel, an 80 gram carbohydrate drink, but all of the gels were maltodextrin or glucose based. So that was the kind of time when riders were starting to think about having these high amounts of carbohydrate on really big days, but there wasn't the product portfolio to allow that. So we helped develop um, some of the Beta Fuel gels and chews um, that contain fructose and maltodextrin. Mm. And ar- around that time, Morton, um 2016, 17, they were bringing out sure. using slightly different technology, but products that allowed for these higher amounts of carbohydrate ingestion on the bike.
1: Mm. That's what I was getting at. I was trying to see if you were around that period of that Giro, because that Giro that Chris Froome won and that, that stage where he overturned three minutes is very famously um, a great advert for science and sport, but um that was when, at least for my eyes, the nutrition side of cycling became quite a, like, oh, it actually does, this does make a big difference. And I think to the wider audience, that was maybe when it was translated and um, maybe also some teams as well, like some of the older school teams must have raised their eyebrows going, oh, shit, you know, is that what you actually do? But for those who don't know, and you can look this up, it's quite cool on YouTube. I think there's a, a cool video of it, Christopher and Giro, science and sport, Google that. But he from him, from my knowledge, he he knew he wanted to go on a big raid on that day, throw everything to the to the fan. And he, I think he told his coach, Tim Kerrison at the time, um, from it might have been him, that I want to do it. And I think Tim said, All right, we're well, gonna need a plan. You know, you're gonna need an epic fueling plan if you want to complete that kind of attack or that kind of raid. And they went out and they planned it all to the T. You know, you're gonna need X amount, which needs x amount per hour which means you're going to need four people on this hill five on the next etc and they really planned it out it's a wicked video but that was a big game changer i think um just for the whole cycling world of what you can do if you're fueling to the max of what you can take
0: yeah definitely and like james morton who was the nutritionist there at the time is a, a friend and colleague of mine so i was a student of his just before that that period um and yeah, so kind of, yeah, it was a lot of detail went into that, but it's funny now because that level of detail, certainly when I was in INEOS and now in UNOX, we do that level of detail now for, for every race with with fueling and extra feeds and things like that. And a lot of teams have, have caught up with that. Um, but then it was quite, quite unique that that level of thought process had gone into it. But yeah, for each race we do now, there's a very, systematic plan of what drink goes where and where the key points are going to be for, for riders to fuel. Um, but yeah, at, at that time kind of, I would say most teams weren't, weren't doing that. Um, but again, it's like anything. So then, then the focus has been on that for the past few years, the on-bike fueling, but I still think a lot of athletes and teams probably overlook the off-bike fueling. There's so much focus on how much can you ingest on the bike but a lot of people then forget, well, it's really how fueled are you before the race and how well can you recover that glycogen after the race? And if that gets overlooked, then that, that can catch up with you as well. So it's got to be a, a two-pronged approach.
1: Mm, okay. Well, let's go into the little plan of attack here now. I'm just thinking I was about to sneeze. Uh, what we'll do nowadays, we'll do the green tour sim, right? So I've listeners, I've planned a little fake stage, right? So James is gonna take us through a bit of a mock grand tour, if you will. So what we'll do is James will explain what my might need to be eating or aiming to eat if I was a rider going into the Tour de France, right? And then we'll do a little mock stage and go through some of the things that I would have to eat. Um, if I was riding uh, the tour and getting ready to win my um, my thirty fifth Grand Tour stage, my, my big calf. So, let's say we're a week out, James. Okay, a week out. What are some of the things that you would be um, you know advising a rider on your team to be considering with, with regards to nutrition a week out from Tour de France?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would probably start. Before way before a week, you know, because in those lead-ups we we fine tuning everything. We are fine tuning um, how they're fueling in the Dauphiné and the other races that they're doing, making sure that things are on track with the weight targets that we've, that we've set. And then we would usually be um, before the Grand Depart. We would be at the hotel together, and it's just a case of getting that balance because they tend to not do a lot of training those those days before so we don't want yeah. to be kind of over fueling them um, just keeping them healthy um big emphasis on fruits and vegetables keeping hydrated not doing anything stupid or trying anything new um so that they they start the first stage feeling feeling fresh and not not heavy and bloated and um so yeah keeping it keeping it quite simple um what in those first avoiding? few days
1: what am i w- avoiding in the lead up to not feel heavy and bloated
0: yeah so i mean if if you're not doing lots of training then you don't need to be in high amounts of of carbohydrate you know so if, if somebody's you know overeating those days then they can actually end up retaining quite a lot of water and glycogen and salt and then they can feel quite quite heavy so we really periodize how much carbohydrate they need on those days depending on the training that that's been prescribed in those leading days um we would probably increase things like fruits and vegetables and fiber as well so they're not feeling hungry all the time um Mm. and just keep keep things nice nice and steady and then the day before that's when we would start to ramp up the carbohydrate intake um depending on the on the first stage you know if it was a if it was a time trial or a prologue then not so much but usually the first stage is pretty aggressive and even if on paper it doesn't look that difficult it's going to need fueling and focus um mm. so we'd just be going through those kind of things making sure that anything they want to avoid or any issues or burning questions they have before the tour so that they they feel confident and calm in those those leading days right okay okay so we've navigated that say we've
1: got through the first four stages i'm just chilled out i've kept the powder dry because i know stage four is when i'm going to take the yellow yellow jersey now listening. My rider profile, I'm 70 kilos, all muscle, right? I'm a bit of a puncher, so I like the uphill finish, okay? So I want to take it to the line. Stage four, it's 180Ks, James, all right? 3,200 meters, it's a rolling stage. so difficult and there's a little uphill kick to the line. I can win, right? It's breakfast of the day, all right? So this is it, breakfast of the day. Let's assume I've fueled correctly in the days leading up to Breakfast. What would you be advising? This is, you know, for that sort of stage. What am I looking at? What's going to be on the the breakfast table for me when I roll into the uh, beautiful red and yellow
0: and black Uno X bus? (laughs) Um, So we we have uh, we have quite a a good set. We have a small small kitchen kitchen truck, and then the riders eat in the kind of uh, dining room in the hotel. So um, I would usually be down at breakfast with our our chef Nikki. The riders would have had the plan sent out the night before. Typically, a stage like this, I would estimate, would be somewhere around 4,500 calories plus minus. That would be the kind of, for mm. this kind of rider, where we'd be looking at. And breakfast is fairly similar through it through a grand tour. We would be aiming for somewhere like 2.5 grams per kilogram of carbohydrate, so about 175 grams of carbohydrate. Typically, that would be from things like... Um, overnight oats like a soaked birch and muesli that that we use that our riders quite like um hot porridge some riders yeah, really traditionally have grown up with hot porridge and they 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 like that it's quite a lot of hot porridge for for the bigger guys that would be like four 50 500 grams of weight of of hot porridge um Bring some some juice yeah um whereas other riders don't like to have that weight of food in the stomach they would prefer to to have rice, which would be more like 250, 300 grams of rice, which is less bulk in the stomach. Um, We would be looking to add in some some foods that contain fructose because we know fructose is really important for topping up the liver store of glycogen. So that would be jams, honeys, smoothies, uh, fruit purees, things like that. Mm. Then riders typically have some form of protein. So whether that's like a skier, yogurt or a high protein yogurt or a, a two egg omelet is um, a favorite.
1: Why is the protein of bread an important
0: important thing to have? Just because over a three week race, you know, the, the protein is really important to, to help the muscles repair and replenish. It's not, if you're doing a one day event, the priority for breakfast is making sure you're getting enough carbohydrate in, but over three weeks, it's really important that we're just hitting, hitting those protein targets and protein slightly different to carbohydrate in that you need to to feed the body protein every four to five hours so it can be in this repair breakdown phase all of the time if we go really long times without protein then that can impact on a muscle breakdown so they don't need masses of protein it's quite easy to hit the target but breakfast is, is a key window where we want to get get some easy to digest protein in there um so that would be the typical breakfast if this was a you know 4,500 Mountain Day Summit finish, then they might add in some pancakes or some banana bread, um, oh. a couple of glasses of extra smoothie just to nudge that breakfast up a bit more. But breakfast would usually be pretty sta- stable through through a grand tour with slight adjustments. Hmm.
1: What about, um, you know, at the breakfast table? Riders, right I imagine, be having this coffee, in, 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 like I said, advised to have a bit of coffee before the start of caffeine or you prefer to get that the riders to get that from their, um, like in-race nutrition?
0: Uh, I mean, coffee and cycling culture, it it goes hand in hand. So I very rarely make recommendations on caffeine, coffee at breakfast, you know, it's what, what they feel they need. Some riders will have made their coffee in their room with the aero press or whatever setup they have. And (laughs) before they've even come to the dining room. So, we leave that side of things up, up to them. We, we try and advise them around caffeine in the stage, but also prioritizing the stages where they need to go full in with, with high caffeine, but then other stages where we maybe get them to ease off a bit on caffeine and prioritize recovery. Because if you have caffeine, you know, it's going to stay in the system for 12, 12 hours. So that can really impact on re- recovery and sleep. And if it's a later finish, you know, is it more important that the rider recovers well and has a good night's sleep and and prepares for the next day that's going to be their key stage rather than you know smashing three hundred milligrams of caffeine? So we try we try and balance it out kind of later in the day. Um, but yeah, I don't think I'd win an argument if I started telling riders about coffee and caffeine at breakfast. Um, <laughs> some riders don't drink any coffee, but that's that's quite rare. They'd be the um, yeah. the odd ones out.
1: The only rider I can think of. Who doesn't is um, Tom Peacock. I think he doesn't, I think he just drinks tea, which is fine, you know. He just eats their own. Yeah. Um I think caffeine used to be banned for cyclists too. Was it 1984 to 2000? I think a high, high amounts of caffeine was actually was banned under the 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 start or usada, whatever it's called. So that's uh it's interesting how that
0: used to be. Yeah. Yeah, it was banned. Um, yeah, and then it was on the WAPS list. But caffeine is so it's every it's everywhere now. And you know when you when you speak with just recreational people about going to their local coffee shop and a standard coffee now in a coffee shop, I have three three espressos in it, you know caffeine the caffeine amounts that people are ingesting without even realizing a a crazy. Um, so I think it'd be quite difficult to um for it for it to be. but again with caffeine more isn't always better you know we're always trying to get the biggest benefit but for the lowest dose because Mm -hmm. there's always going to be a trade-off between you know i've had riders go too high with caffeine and have muscle cramps and strange sensations in their hands and difficulty following instruction and um you know then impossible to sleep at night. So you've always got to try and find that sweet spot. You know, more isn't always better. <laughs> There's going to be a trade-off somewhere. When I was at swimming, I had riders who, sorry, swimmers who who took too much caffeine and they even said, like, how their hand stroke in the water felt was just really off. So it it changes all of these different perceptions. So it is it is a drug <laughs> and it's easy to, to forget that. Mm, absolutely. Wow.
1: Okay. Well, then now we've entered. I've had breakfast stuff. Um, big fan of banana bread. Now, during the stage, so hundred eighty k's, three hundred meters, maybe like close, maybe five hours would probably take. So, for this, what are the recommendations you'd be making for a stage like that? Um, for the during the stage on bike nutrition. Um, yeah. Would you be do? You, do you guys operate with those little stem notes that you often see? Um, the riders have just sitting on the stem of the markers or
0: yeah what would you be like? yeah some sometimes i mean as well there's like a, usually a 3 hour gap from breakfast until starting the race so some riders you know will have a small snack on on the bus as well whether that's a yeah little little cake or just something small just to have a little top up um and then hi- hydration as well making sure they're drinking enough and then yeah some some stages we use the the stem template um again i'm a big believer that if you start putting posters and stickers and things all of the time, it just becomes like wallpaper and riders don't look at it. So if there's a rider that a stage is important, or we know it's going to be a tricky stage with fueling, then I will do a STEM sticker. But for most stages, we we don't bother and they the riders will have a plan in advance and then they will execute that in the race, how how they see fit. You know, these guys are racing a lot. They, they know for most races, how they should be fueling and, they know if they get it wrong, the, the consequences, but say for example, the first four stages of the tour, because they're so hectic, I did, I did a STEM template in those first few days, just as a prompt, just so they could look down and be like, Oh no. Yeah. I've, I've not had enough. I need to hit this in this hour, but it's not something we do every day. I think again, it's now become, teams are doing it now for every stage and it's, it's a little bit, I know riders just won't look at it. If you put something there all the time, it just they just don't mm. see it. Whereas if it's new, they'll then engage with it more. So we use that. Um, and my approach in, in a in a stage is to progressively increase carbohydrate intake as the as the stage progresses because we're, we're fully loaded in those first hours, so we don't need to go full tilt and be trying to pump in as much carbohydrate as we can from the from the first hour. So I would probably start off somewhere around eighty grams per hour and then gradually increase somewhere around 180 to 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour for for a stage like this that would change as the, as the race went on so traditionally if the if the stage is a bit easier earlier on that would be more from solids like um cakes and bakes and bars and then obviously as the intensity starts to ramp up then that would switch more to to gels and drinks again if it's hot the the riders would would be drinking more so we need to factor that in and and add in more more water as well as sports drinks so that they're, they're not just ingesting loads and loads of of sugar from from drinks they need to be hydrating with water as well to make sure that they're getting that right so that's how, how we would do it and then riders would have different preferences some riders just like maybe two two things to have in a race so the riders like the variety or how different things feel in the stomach so we'll have slightly different plans for different riders that they they adapt based on preferences
1: why do you um why would you have start with solids and then move to more liquid based throughout a state what, what's the
0: reasoning there just because again trying to race five hours a day for three weeks just on gels and drinks it's it's a lot you know people get bored people like to have that feeling of chewing real food and how how mm. food can feel in the stomach some riders will do a full stage just on on gels and drinks but others will feel quite hungry you know 3 hours into a race if they've just been doing that because there's there's nothing in the stomach so mm. that's that's kind of why we do it, do that
1: mm, okay is it better to have the liquids liquid based calories sort of towards the end of the stage rather than have the the cakes and bakes and stuff at the end but like- is there a thing about it's just gonna
0: be it's gonna be absorbed quicker as well you know it's gonna be and you don't you don't want to be chewing things when you when you go in you know full tilt up a climb or you're attacking (laughs) you know there's (laughs) there's the practical side of things as well it's much easier to squeeze a gel down than try and chew a a bake or a you know an oat based flapjack isn't it so just from a practical side of things as well um so it's it's logic it's science, but then logic and practicality as well. The three have to be aligned. It
1: actually reminds me of this absolutely stinking idea for um on bike nutrition. Now I'm sure the idea was well thought out of, but it just was a poorly executed product. And it was called Split Nutrition. I think it was a US um, brand. And um anyone that <laughs> um it just makes me laugh. Basically. It was like two gels kind of, you know, glued together, you know, like kind of like a whiz-fizz-lolly sort of style thing. And one side of the gel was um, like a jelly, and then the other was a peanut butter or an almond butter. And the idea is that you could tear the lid off both and you could sort of squeeze them up and you get the peanut butter jelly-style flavour, which sounds great, and it actually tasted terrific. There was an almond butter one, peanut butter one. But the problem was was that unless it was like 55 degrees, the peanut butter, you just couldn't get it out of the um, <laughs> the packet. So all you would do is you'd get all the jam on one side, but on the other side, you just get the oil that you've tried to squeeze up because the actual thick peanut butter is stuck in there. And, um, yeah, it's not a good idea. No, no.
0: So, yeah, there's lots of things like that that sound a good idea, but when you see how deep these guys go in the key moments you know th- there's no chance they're going to be you know sat eating solid things but again when they've got easy phases in the race they they do like different textures as well because you get texture fatigue and flavour fatigue you know if you just have one one of something so they have to have that variety and one day they might have a different bar here and there or we might put different things in the feeds or musette just to give that different sensation <laughs> so they, they're not not just completely bored. They're mm. getting their carbs down is the main thing.
1: Now, the final 30Ks of a stage, particularly for a leader or, you know, the real key members of that particular team that are going to be executing something for the for the finish of that stage, um, final hour can be really important. Um, I understand with nutrition, are the what are the considerations for, say, like a sprint stage? If you've got, you know, big Christoph lining up or um, the other gentleman, I can't pronounce his last name, but the big unit, um Surin, yeah. Yeah, with the uh yeah. the W last name. Yeah. If they're lining up for a sprint, are they getting like a, a hit of caffeine in that last hour? Like what are you thinking about there?
0: Yeah, I mean, even even sooner than that. Plus, the guys who've got to do all of the work to get them into the position in that in that last hour as well. So it's it's all together, but we work work backwards because with things like caffeine, we know it takes around 45 to 60 minutes to hit the peak in the blood. So we would really maybe from 50K out be thinking, okay, now's when we would have like a, a hit of caffeine to prepare for that last last final. But as well, we might do that on a mountain stage. If we know somebody's finish line is a key point of that mountain, then they might take the caffeine quite early in the race so that, that they've got that peak action for, for when they need to to be going really deep and emptying the tank. So we, we work backwards from there. Um, so they have a recommendation on their their STEM and they're told in advance, you know, try and get your caffeine around, around this point. So it's peaking for the key moment. Mm. A big thing I used to see when I first started working in cycling, people would be taking caffeine like in the last 20 minutes or 15 minutes. And that caffeine not going to be in the blood until right. they're on the bus. And mm. it's going to c- compromise sleep <laughs> and recovery. So it's better yeah, to it take is. it early because caffeine starts working after about 15 minutes, reaches its peak around 45, 50 minutes. And then five hours later, then it's at half concentration. So it's got a real long ergogenic mm. window and then it's only 10, 12 hours when it's actually left the body. People think they take caffeine, they get an instant boost and it's gone straight away, but it's quite a long sustained sustained peak that, that caffeine has. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how, how we would approach it. And then the final 30K there, they're just kind of, advise to to keep on fueling as much as they can and fuel all the way to the last 5K really because even if the carbohydrate hasn't made it through to the blood and to the muscle we know that there's some research showing that the brain will sense that there's carbohydrate in the in the mouth and that can improve perception and performance from a cognitive point of view even before it's hit the legs so we would say you know fuel fuel up to the last 5k um is, is usually what we would be recommending.
1: Mm, how was that was that the study where they did the like the mouth swigging of, of a carbohydrate drink and then they performed an exercise test and it was an increase in performance or something like
0: that exactly yeah. and in, in time trials and things they've they've yeah. shown that as well and they've even compared like um, a low calorie like a cordial or juice but it actually has no sugar in it even if it tastes sweet and there's a performance difference so, the sensors in the oral cavity can tell that there's sugar in the solution. That tells the brain the sugar coming. And then the brain tells the legs the sugar coming so that they can have uh, improved performance, even though it's not actually hit the legs, uh, which is yeah pretty amazing when you think about it. Yes. I've pulled some pretty big turns on the front of a
1: group. If I know we're coming, you know, the big hills ride, if we're approaching the cafe, like I'm ripping a huge one the last 10Ks, I reckon because I know I'm going to be sinking into a couple of, you know, a couple (laughs) of slices of carrot cake. Um, Seriously, though, I have. I probably get another set of legs when we get close to the the cast off. Okay, post stage Now, you know, one thing that I think about post stage with with nutrition is um, or just like refueling is just that classic. It might have been Sagan rube. And uh, when he won Roubaix, the world champs jersey against um, Dillier, and he had the big handful of gummy bears, Haribos. Um, What's what's post stage? The riders just finished. What's going on?
0: Yeah, I mean, so as soon as they cross that finish line, we we're preparing for the next day. It's like you know we're we're on the we're on the stopwatch. We we need to. My way of coming at it is those first kind of two to three hours after the stage is when the muscles are most receptive to replacing the glycogen they've used in that stage so we really want to maximize that if we leave it and leave it the muscle's rate of uptake it it, it is less and less so we it, it's that kind of golden window that we really want to yeah get the c- carbohydrate in get the glycogen replenished so they can start to prepare for tomorrow the best way of doing that is is foods that are really high glycemic index high sugar so they can get in fast and start to to replace it. You know, I almost say it's like the, the doors are wide open. They they just want all of the sugar to come back in. So mm. yeah, using th- things like gummy bears and Haribo can be a really good start using um, high sugar drinks. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of soda because it, it does have quite a high acid load which isn't great for a for a gut which has been under stress in the heat but again having having a quick hit of sugar and in that first few hours then they would get to the bus and the the bigger guys so that's at the finish line the bigger guys would probably have more haribo um, just to keep keep pushing that and a recovery shake containing some protein and some mm-hmm. carbohydrate then they would have a shower and then they would have um a meal and um, that's been portioned out for them so it's been prepared in advance and my job in the tour is to portion out for the individual rider so they've got wow. an individual portion um and then if it's been a been a crazy day we might add a smoothie in as well and some cake to really maximizing those first few hours the food that they're, they're getting back in
1: wow that's that's a lot of work isn't it each day
0: yeah it is and i think but i think with the tour this year i think me being in control of that on the bus each day really really made sure that the riders were getting what they needed and they could speak to me if their appetite was off and i could give them different combinations so i was speaking about this recently it probably sounds quite random that but there's pots of haribo which have been measured out there's food that's been measured out i know how much carbohydrates in all of the smoothies so then you know we we can see how much we need to get into them in different combinations so i've got my my little spreadsheet and i can keep a track of what they've actually had in those first few hours um after the race so then we we get the power data through and i can see okay yeah it's been harder than predicted we need to kind of scale up a little bit now on the on the bus before we get back to the hotel but i think when when somebody's tired and empty and if the food's just left there with a set of scales i i don't think riders will always hit what's needed I think they will probably under eat in those situations and over a three week grand tour then that can come up and, and bite them on the backside so it was something I thought was important that I was in, in control of especially those first few hours after the race.
1: Mm, wow yeah that's
0: I guess it's really important
1: to have yourself in that role there during during a tour or any grand tour like this because I guess the further you get into the um, grand tour the second into the third week everyone's fatigued. The riders, you know, they're, they're tired. The staff as well, if, if maybe in the past um, staff members of the team might be doing two roles, you know, the nutritionist could also be doing something else and then maybe gets tired and that falls away. So it's obviously super important that, that you're there in your sole role, uh, making sure that the riders and, and, uh, are getting everything they they get in um, for those final weeks.
0: Yeah, and I was, you know, making a joke of it. You know, being on the bus with eight dudes getting changed, having showers, and I'm measuring pasta and haribo, and I was like, you know, I've got, I've you know, been all this ex- experience and qualifications and studying, and I'm essentially pushing it out pasta and haribo for some naked bike riders on the back of a bus, <laughs> but. but But for me, that is kind of applied sports nutrition. You know, anybody could stick a poster on the wall and say, okay, you need three grams per kilogram, five grams per kilogram. It's then actually making sure that that amount of carbohydrate goes into the rider's stomach and they're getting the food else. Otherwise, it's it's pointless. I think Mm -hmm. because our team is a bit smaller, there's not the same amount of personnel on the bus. I think in other teams the bus is uh, almost like a VIP management only kind of at the back, whereas our team is much more, I know you've had Jens on the podcast, but it's much more um, open and friendly. And, you know, me saying I think I need to be on the bus was was accepted, but that's not always the case in other teams.
1: Oh, I bet it is. Yeah, I, I do doubt it, but we know Ox very forward-thinking. Um, and it actually reminded me, I'll have to hit up Jens for our pod next year. It's an annual thing now. We get the lowdown on Okay. Of what an Alexa are up
0: to. Um, that was really cool. Yeah, Jens is an open book, but he's very, very honest and wears his heart on his sleeve. But going back to the nutrition and things, personally, you know, myself and the doctor work, worked every day with the riders and to finish the, the race with eight riders, all healthy, all with stable weights, all still producing, you know, power and heart rate values in the last week as the first week, you know, I do think the detail we put around nutrition definitely played played a part in that. So, from that side of things, it was yeah, it was a, a nice nice feeling to arrive in Paris with those guys all all together and still healthy and cracking jokes and be able to share a beer with them on the champs elysées. It was yeah, really special.
1: Oh, that must have been a really good achievement for yourself personally, and of course the team. Um, it was awesome to see you guys there. But yeah, that sounds like that last day in in Paris must have been really good um yeah for your own just just a career development
0: yeah it was it was cool it was cool I mean I've been there before with with Ineos but yeah this this did feel special because you know I can't control results you know right riders crash and things like that but it just felt that the nutrition side of things and the health side of things we we did everything that we could and it 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 paid off so yeah that was professionally quite satisfying and, the, yeah, the beers, the beers went down well in Paris that night <laughs> between nice. the riders and the staff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, bet, I bet they did. Um, so what would you say is one of the biggest challenges with regards to fueling um, in cycling uh, overall, not just grand tours, one-day races, off-seasons? What do you think is, like, the challenge that's uh, that you face uh, the most?
0: Yeah, I mean, mean, with all nutrition, the big thing is every everyone's an expert on nutrition. You know, we all eat four or five times a day. We all know we all have preferences. You know, so everyone has an opinion on food and nutrition, and that's that's pretty tricky to navigate. You know, because you're employed as a in inverted commas nutrition expert, but I always think I might have a knowledge in this this area, but then I need to try and find what works for this individual rider with their preferences their opinion what their coaches told them their girlfriends you know following a different diet it it encompasses so many different things mood emotion and you know as well as the the performance side so coming at it from a holistic point of view in cycling specifically it's it's weight you know because weight is a a metric it's a can be a determinant in uh, performance, especially in in the mountains and things like that. So you're constantly on that knife edge of working with the rider to help them optimise weight, but also optimise training and racing performance. And I think in the past, the sport's been probably too weight focused and too much focus on, on watts per kilogram as a kind of paper-based exercise. Whereas we work in the team, it's no good looking at your what's per kilogram in a theoretical uh, perspective. It's what can you produce at the end of you know three four hours of racing when you're fatigued. Um, that's that's when it's important, and that that comes from banking the hours of training and being really dialed with your your fueling and your nutrition. So some riders might think they need to be the lightest they can possibly be, but that might not be compatible with being as as punchy and explosive and robust to be able to produce those watts so it's always helping the rider understand that because riders and coaches will focus on a weight that a rider has been but that weight might have been dehydrated underfueled and then the rider is going to be slightly heavier if they're glycogen loaded um, but that can be a good thing you know i get messages from riders All my weight's up a kilo it means I've done done the right thing I'm glycogen loaded I'm ready to go we know two hours into the race that glycogen will have been burnt off anyway so I think it's helping the rider understand that when they jump on a set of scales and they see that number that isn't a good bad that's it in context with how hydrated they are you know how glycogen loaded they are have we been working on muscle mass as a changes there in the off season. So it's understanding that whole picture. And it, that's that's my role is to navigate that with the coaches, the riders and the performance staff because what's per kilo is a is a metric that's yeah spoken about and it is important. We can't hide away from that. But I think sometimes it can be over overstated and forgotten the whole context around that. It's like you could have the UCI has limits, doesn't it, on bike weights. You could you know you, you might have a bike that's five Five kilos or four point five kilos—is that going to be a bike that's going to be a performance bike? Just because it's that light, you know, is it going to break at some point? So it's that's how I try and explain it. Mm, Very good analogy, great answer. And um,
1: one other question I've got: Have you ever, like, you know, just no, never name any teams or anything like that? But I wonder if you'd seen anything uh, that another team or heard that another team was doing. Um, from the nutrition standpoint that you thought was, wow, that's actually out of date, but you're still doing it today. Is there mm-hmm. anything you've noticed in the last few years in your role um, in pro cycling?
0: I mean, it's hard and things things evolve all of the time. And my, my big emphasis is on we c- we can control what we're doing and I would prefer to focus on the things that we can control and work on best. I think when you start looking too much over the fence, you actually miss the things that are going on in, in your own house. So there are things I see here and there, but you know, it's it's one of those things. I mean, the the noise around ketones is is still there, and I know some teams use them, and I know some teams use them probably in in the wrong context, and but yeah, that's that's up to them. Um, but yeah, the big thing for me around when something new comes out in cycling nutrition everybody jumps to that but then they figure out all of the big things we know about like carbohydrate and glycogen research which you know has been around for 100 120 years and riders are still getting that wrong with fueling and underfueling, and you Mm -hmm. still hear riders bonking and having issues with you know energy crisis in a race that for me is the 99 percent of what nutrition should focus on in cycling and if you're still getting that wrong, but you've got all these other strategies, then I think think you're probably missing the point.
1: Oh, I love it. You know, there was a football player here, AFL football, not soccer, um, football player called Gary Ablett. And he was a, you know, one of the best players ever. But a player who'd been playing on his team for a few years, um, and then went to another team, his teammates asked him, said, you know, what was Gary like at training? You know, was he you know, he must have been just deleted everything. Was he super skillful? All that stuff. You know, what was he doing? Is he doing extra stuff? Was he staying back after training, doing more before? And the guy said, no, he wasn't. He just did the basics really, really well. And I think, um, yeah, it's a good way to put uh, what you're saying there. You do the basics really well and you're usually going to be in a pretty good stead.
0: Yeah, exactly. And like those, you know, the attention to detail we have around the big rocks of of nutrition that's that's what we really focus on i'm always horizon scanning and uh, riders will come to me and say i've heard these guys are, are using this supplement what do you think about that and it's my job to always be one step ahead of the pupils you know to look at the evidence look at things and you know in a lot of things there might be promise or there might be a small study here and there but when you dig down into it you know if something sounds too good to be true then then it it usually is um and it's very much building building blocks with a lot of our younger guys. We're just focusing on, can they cope with the rigours of, you know, being a professional bike rider, banking 25, 30 hours of training a week, you know, the racing that they do through the season. Are they healthy? Are they stable? Okay, it's only when they've been doing that for a season or two, then we might start to look at, do we need to work on body composition more? Do we need to add in layers? But well, I think too often people want to Jump to all the novel, flashy stuff, but then they're just missing all the basic stuff. Mm. It's the it's like when you see time trialists or recreational cyclists with you know ten thousand pound specialized and Pinarello, but the rest yeah. of their lifestyle is probably not optimal. And it's yeah. like, well, could you have saved yourself a bit of money and worked on some other things first? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we all know that. <laughs> I'll
1: catch you, man. Don't worry. Um, great, James. That was so good. Um, there's this topic. I mean, we could go on for hours. You know, I, you're a busy man, I want to keep your time, but I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge. I mean, everyone, he's not standing there with with papers in front of him, this is just coming out of his, his mind of all his experience. So, um, really, really appreciate it, James. It's super insightful, mate.
0: Yeah, no worries. Happy to chat.
1: Right, legends that's another episode of the pro podcast done and dusted i hope you enjoyed this one with james moran from uno x and i hope you learned a lot more uh, about the fueling requirements considerations and developments with regards to nutrition in the world tour so interesting and geez we only just scratched the surface but legends Next week, we're going to be going to the SD Works team bus. Really, really keen to get one of the SD Works riders on the podcast for the first time. And I tell you what, it won't be the last two before the year is up. Don't you worry about that. But until then, make sure you get the TPR bottles on our website. Uh, check out Smith Optics, Attacker, and of course, get on Swift. All right, legends. I'll see you on the next one.